quit biting and wind sucking are probably what these affected horses need to do to maintain normal gut functions. Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. A place where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Terrible Country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respects to their ancestors, past, present, and future. And I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. This episode is brought to you by Eden River Equestrian. Eden River Equestrian is soon to be Australia's leading sustainable horse brand and a community hub where conscious horse people can find all the information and support they need to become more sustainable in every way. Eden River Equestrian will officially launch on Wednesday, the 1st of May. I'm so excited to finally be launching phase two of my dream. In this episode, I speak with Paul McGreevy, Professor of Animal Behaviour and Animal Welfare Science. If you've ever had a difficult conversation with a traditional horse person and you've wondered how your training methods and beliefs can be backed up by science, then listeners, this is the podcast for you. Paul has spent 23 years scientifically researching horse behaviour and welfare in both the UK and Australia. He has published 250 peer-reviewed papers as well as books on equine and dog behaviour and he is the co-founder and honorary fellow of the International Society for Equitation Science. He also talks in this interview of his eight-week trek on horseback from Victoria to Canberra. So he's not a desk-bound scientist, he's a real horseman who has a passion for equitation science and debunking myths that are out there around some methods of training and behaviour. I believe it's important for us as conscious horse people to keep up to date with this kind of science so we can have real conversations with people who think we're all a bit woo-woo in our methods. Paul tells me where and how we can access this information and also how we can be a part of the new study that they are doing where they are collecting data from all over the world that will help revolutionise horse training the world over. So stay tuned for that. Here is Paul. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure, Tracy. Can you first tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Yes, certainly. So I work at the University of Sydney in the Sydney School of Veterinary Science, and I'm lucky enough to hold the position of Professor of Animal Behaviour and Animal Welfare Science. I've been there 23 years, um, and I've been very fortunate to have amazing support from, from the vet school there in, um, in my career uh, as I attempt to understand horses and their behaviour and their welfare needs better. And did you grow up with horses? What was the, because I, I understand that science and, and figuring things out would have been right in there since a child, but um, where did the horses come into it? Yeah, I'd like to say I grew up with horses, but I don't think I've grown up properly. Um, <laughs> I, I'm pony mad and have been since uh, I can remember. I, mean, I can remember um, 
my sister and I, my sister's also a vet, uh, she and I were, were crazy about horses. And we ended up, um, as little kids, working for a horse dealer. Um, we were kind of cannon fodder for his um, various latest acquisitions. So he could work out whether they were broken in or not. <laughs> of course, we don't talk about horses being broken in these days. We talk about foundation training. But I certainly was exposed to some very interesting horse behaviour when I was a child. And that really captivated my interest in behavior but also health and so I, I decided I wanted to work with horses um, I was short enough to be a healthy farrier but uh, or a jockey but I ended up um, working um, towards university and got into university very happy day for Paul and um, went to Bristol University worked as a vet after that for about five years in mixed practice and then was very fortunate to land a scholarship to study horse behaviour full-time for a PhD at the University of Bristol. And did you have to apply for that? What is it that you put forward to be able to get that role? Um, well, I went back to my old professors at the university and discussed the prospects with them, and they were kind enough to go out and find the funding then I had to apply for that scholarship um, it took about two years I remember ringing up from Australia to the UK almost every month to see if anything had changed so I'm surprised they stuck with me because I did make myself a little bit boring in the process um, but they forgave me and then being able to study horse behavior full-time um, and answer some really pressing questions about what were called stable vices and now, they're now called stereotypies. So things like weaving, box walking, crib biting, wind sucking and so forth. These were the, the behaviours that I was fortunate enough to focus on for a whole three years. And it opened my eyes to how, how much work had actually been done on horse behaviour up until that point I'd imagined as a vet that I knew kind of what I needed to know about horse behavior turns out I was wrong um, and that process of becoming a student again revealed to me how often it is healthy to have the humility to admit that you're wrong because science is changing all the time it's building more and more evidence and so a good scientist has to accept that they they are in a dynamic situation and they're, they're having to respond to new information all the time it's it's unfortunate that many of us in the horse world tend to stick with one position and we're happy to die in a ditch holding that position when we know that animals are teaching us lessons all the time and we've got to be open to that information so um that's how i i wandered into this opportunity and it certainly changed my life being able to uh, recognize that there were over a thousand published papers in horse behavior that I as a vet student hadn't known anything about and so, most of the horse uh, world probably doesn't know anything about either <laughs> well common knowledge, on the really. back of that it's, you're, you're probably right Tracy yeah I mean on the back of that that PhD I, I published a book um, for vets and equitation scientists um, so that was a, a, an, a, an attempt to package over a thousand references um, in a book called Equine Behaviour. 
um, that has been reprinted since then. Um, but yeah, it's 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 amazing how how sometimes inaccessible some of this incredibly valuable information actually is. And what happened after those three years? Where did you go from there? Because you've been in it for twenty years, twenty something. Twenty three, yes. And so I I wanted to go back to Australia because I I love the country and I also love Australians and their can-do attitude and I also think it's a great place to keep horses because we don't tend to stable horses nearly as much in the southern hemisphere as we do in the northern hemisphere and given that my PhD had shown Mm. we've got more space here is all I was going to say we've got a lot of space here in Australia yes and we have we've got more space and we've got well-drained pasture that doesn't bog up too much when uh, the rains come so um it, it, we're, we're very fortunate to, to be able to give horses um all of that space and their opportunity to forage on pasture and it's so much better for horses to be able to feed as they wish when they wish and with whom they they wish so giving them that autonomy to decide how close they need to be to other horses and which other horses they occupy their day with is huge that's a, a, a behavioral need that they have and also being out of confinement is very good for a prey animal a prey animal has not evolved to be in a confined space because it increases vulnerability and these were things that you found during your phd well we we published i think five papers from the phd um they revealed that horses are not swallowing air when they crib bite and wind suck that, that debunked that myth we actually used x-rays to work out what happened to the, the gas when it went into the top of the esophagus um we showed the risk factors for all of these unwelcome behaviors we actually did a survey of 11,000 horses and revealed what were the risk factors for various horses showing crib biting versus box walking for instance and so that that was a, a useful contribution i think to the, the literature and um, we also showed what happens when you prevent crib biting and wind sucking and how that alters gut function so that revealed that crib biting and wind sucking are probably what these affected horses need to do to maintain normal gut function so it's stopping them from doing these behaviors is not without some consequences um, we also looked at the, the the ways in which people try to prevent these oral behaviors um, and and ha- we also showed how the, the horses stress parameters tend to increase when you deprive them of the opportunity to perform these behaviours and also when you restrict access to forage, which is hay or silage. That's extraordinary. I'm just sitting here and it's ticking over in my head that you, you know, you see horses windsucking and you do everything you can to try and stop it, but they're actually trying to tell you something really clearly about their gut. That's right. We're, 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 we know that we can set horses up to start this behaviour even as young as, as 20 weeks of age by giving them concentrated diets. So the more natural we can, more naturally we can raise foals in groups of other mares and foals um, with minimal access to 
concentrated foods that are being manufactured, the fewer of these behaviours we'll actually see in the next generation. But of course, everyone's under a lot of pressure, or well, not everybody, but a lot of people in certain, certain disciplines in the equestrian world are under pressure to, to produce very well-grown foals, mm-hmm. very mature-looking yearlings and two-year-olds. And the, the easiest way to do that is to, to start pumping food into them. Um, and it's done with the best will in the world, but it, it brings with it the risk of orthopedic consequences. I'm thinking here of degenerative joint disease, but also gut consequences and behavioral consequences as a, con- as a, as a final sequelae. So um, all of this reminds us that we should try to, to keep horses as naturally as possible. Any vet will agree that the moment you bring the horse off pasture, you're going to increase the risk of gastrointestinal consequences that you really don't want. So, you know, the, the risk of colic, for instance, automatically increases the moment you come off pasture, simply because the guts, the gut of the horse, some people say it was designed by a committee, it's not well suited to intermittent feeds. Humans think that's totally fine because we think of breakfast, lunch and dinner. Mm. Um, but horses are trickle feeders. They have not evolved to, to, to be at the mercy of somebody who delivers food on um, an intermittent basis. And, and that's the size of their stomach, out. isn't it? That's the, they've actually Correct. got a small yeah. stomach, so they have to yeah. continually eat. What's really impressive about this as well is that you haven't done a little study. Did you just say you studied 11,000 horses? We had data on 11,000 horses because we approached all of the racehorse trainers in the UK and we got a very pleasing response. So we were able to get data on 11,000 horses. But one of the things that we have to recognise is that statistical analysis means that you don't, you're not obliged to have massive numbers of horses to do science. Statistics will tell you whether the sample was big enough to have a result that you can have confidence in. Mm. So we shouldn't, we should never ignore small studies just because they're small, because sometimes they can demonstrate something very powerful because of the, the tests that the statisticians have subjected those data to. Now this is it that you often hear people saying, oh, they only studied 20 horses. Well, if the statistics say that this is, the result is not by chance, and if the horses were not handpicked by some evil scientist to get the right result they wanted, mm-hmm. then you should have confidence in what's appearing in the peer-reviewed press, in the peer-reviewed literature. If it gets that because far, yes. If it gets that far, yeah, it's been through anonymous peer review. And so people who are competing with the, the authors for funding or for their day in the sun are usually the anonymous peers. So it's in their interest to be the harshest critics of what their competitors are actually trying to put out there. Mm. And that's, that's, they're the goalkeepers for the, the journal. They're trying to avoid the journal publishing weak science. And so a lot of science goes through this um, quite a hostile environment before it exceeds the light of day. And we're encouraging more and more horse people to become conversant in how to be consumers of this sort of science and that's where the international society for equitation science is really kicking goals because it's a society for applied science it's showing how 
science can be applied in this wonderful interaction between horses and humans. And I'm very proud to have been uh, a co-founder of that society. It's booming in popularity. And it makes an awful lot of science very accessible to general horse riders and trainers and coaches. Um, it's, it, its annual conference includes the proceedings, which have a one-page abstract from each presentation. These are freely available online. And at the end of each abstract, we are committed as a society to producing a layperson's message. So even without any scientific training, you can take home a message from each page of that, that document. And there are usually 60 to 80 presentations in a conference, and we don't charge for access to the proceedings. Fantastic. We'll definitely be linking to that in the show notes. That's amazing. And what did you find when you came to Australia? What was the next step for you? Well, I'd been, I'd been working in Australia as a locum, and I'd also done a long-distance ride from Melbourne through to Canberra, which was a wonderful thing to do um, just off, the, off my own bat and with another vet, actually, and three horses. So that taught me a lot about the Australian climate, the, the landscape, um, and and what you can achieve with just, um, you know, some lovely tough horses and um, an eight-week break. Um, but I, what I, I, horses did you ride? What was the brand, breed, sorry? Um, they were just station-bred stock horses. They were nothing fancy. I think they had been, they had had a few behavioural issues, so they were very inexpensive. But by the time we got to Canberra, they were sweet as nuts. I can imagine they've been out living the life of a horse as well, just being able to trek from yeah. place to place must be amazing for them as well. Yeah, it was um it was easy to to um to see it as a study tour, you know, le- learning, allowing the horses to teach us what what they valued and what they were trying to avoid and and how they worked together as a group with us. And what did you find? So I, 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 well, they they were um they, they, the horses like to create peace in their group. They, they don't like to dominate each other. They, um, I think that's, a, that's you know, it's, it's really important for any social animal to keep the peace rather than take over. And this sense that horses are trying to dominate us or take over <laughs> um, is, is now pretty wholly debunked. Um, so we shouldn't assume that horses are trying to dominate us. They, th- there are some very profound misunderstandings that we can create if we buy into that sort of argument. And if, if you think the horse in front of you is trying to get one over on you, you should first of all question what you are actually training it to do and what baggage it has brought to that, that in- interaction. Um, always boil it down to the most simple explanations because if we start to imbue horses with some sort of human cognition, some sort of human thinking power and a, a, a human-like desire to to take over and be the boss, then if the horse doesn't behave as we wish, we can imagine that it is defying us. Mm. And that's when the wheels fall off. If you've got a horse in front of you that you think is defying you, and it doesn't comply with your next cue or your next command or trigger, 
then you might feel justified in escalating the force. If the escalated force doesn't work, you might feel justified in becoming violent. And that's where the wheels truly fall off because you've got a, a potentially highly aroused, scared horse that's not trying to defy you. It's trying to be safe and trying to, to look for safety and they value safety in that situation. So you can throw all of that that defiance argument out of the window. You've got to, to accept that you have created that problem. And um, that's why we love to keep things simple. We work out what the horse is motivated to do on in very simple terms. Is it motivated to be safe? Is it motivated to get out of your space? Is it motivated to get you out of its space? Is it motivated to acquire some food? You know, some really simple things um, are the, the, the key to, to working with horses rather than assuming that they're trying to work against you or get one over on you. It's so similar to counselling and what's the basic need that's trying to be met. It's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad we've got you on. You're debunking all these myths we've got out there. The amount of times I've heard people say that's lack of respect, that needs discipline. It's maybe, maybe not. Well, we can, we can, I can direct your listeners to the International Society for Equitation Sciences position statement on this very topic, which right. is very detailed but, but comes down to a, a very clear conclusion. So it'd be good for your listeners to, to, to acquaint themselves with what the science says about this very topic. I probably haven't done it full justice, so I'd love your your listeners to to um, explore this further if they have the, the opportunity. Mm, I'm sure they will because my listeners were preaching to the converted, but what it gives us as a community, <clears throat> excuse me, what it gives us as a community is somewhere to point people to give us a foundation and a support and a backing for the arguments that we've right. been having for a long time. So that's what you're bringing to this community is a basis of, well, actually they've done so, the science has proven this now and here's where you can go and read it. This is fantastic because we feel a little bit like loners in this world because we, uh, we try to step up and stand up for the horse and we have these conversations, but there's traditional ways and traditional methods and traditional beliefs that don't quite, um, want to change so it's lovely to have these things to be able to point people towards yes I think we, we are learning to be more receptive but there is an old expression um, you can always tell a horseman but you can't tell a horseman anything <laughs> and that's, that's what we've got to sort of work with we've got to understand where that, that love of tradition comes from and accept that a lot of traditional practices are extremely valuable and they they test they they withstand the tests that we subject them to in science so we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater yeah. we're getting rid of some fairly heavily soiled bathwater when we understand the the techniques or the, the mindsets that actually don't stack up mm. so what happened for you after the trick okay so i I've done the trek and I've been working in Australia for um, a couple of years and I was lucky enough to to get the, the scholarship. I did the scholarship and the PhD for three years and I came straight back. Um, while my PhD was being examined, I wrote a book called Why Does My Horse? That was published in 96. 
And it was through that book that I met Andrew McLean, who's he's a, a leading horse trainer and also a, a scholar of horse behavior. He and his wife um, worked down in Victoria and they reached out to me and um, helped me understand how to, to articulate some of the science to a wider audience because they use evidence-based training techniques in their practice. So that was a, a very fortunate meeting of minds. Um, and Andrew and I have, have worked together ever since. Um, and we've written other books together, which has been a very satisfying process. Um, and we're often discussing what's new on the blog and how to, how to understand the relevance of, of new science. So it's, it's great to have a, a collaborator who's so passionate about let, allowing the, the evidence to speak. So I'll always be very grateful to Andrew and Manuela for their friendship and um, their their association in this journey. Mm, and he's a co-founder as well of the International Society for Equitation Science. That's right. We're the two, we're we're the two Australian players that helped to establish that society. That the others are all from from um, Europe. Um, Although some of them have moved, moved around and drifted, drifted around the globe. Yeah, so it's a truly international society. Um, it does a lot to encourage students to consume science. Um, so we're very, we're a very friendly society. And we like to think that we look after our junior members especially well because science can be a little bit intimidating sometimes. And that's why we're very keen to make our conferences and um, uh, various activities as user-friendly as possible. Mm. What was the next lot of study that you did? What else have you debunked? Okay, well, we did a similar sort of um, audit of racehorse trainers in Australia to work out how often they were seeing the same sorts of behaviours as the UK, and we found very similar distributions of, of um these unwelcome behaviours. Um, so despite the space that we have in Australia, when we're training for racing, we do tend to confine horses and limit the amount of forage they eat. So we fall into the same trap as um, the Northern Hemisphere, unfortunately. Um, the next thing that, that happened was that I was fortunate enough to start working with somebody who wanted to do a PhD. That was a, a, a an, an amazing rider and um, thinker. That was Amanda Warren-Smith, who was based at Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga, or at the time um, in Orange. She, she had her base in Orange. And um, so Amanda did a PhD with me, and we started to, to develop techniques to study rain tension, which has proven to be a very fertile area. If you think about when you're coaching somebody to ride, you're really frustrated because you don't know exactly how much rain tension is going through their hands. Once the, the rain is straight, you don't know how much tension is going through the rain to the bit. Yeah. And that's why feel is so important. So demystifying what what is going on in terms of feel is one of the holy grails in equitation science, in the science of, of horse training and horse riding. So Amanda, as part of her PhD, developed um, rain tension technology for, for measuring rain tensions and um, 
And that is one of the, the, the very fundamental aspects of, of equitation science, because you need to know what's, what's being communicated from the rider to the, the horse. Of course, it depends on the bit that's receiving that sort of that, that tension and how many levers and how many chains that bit has um, and how habituated the horse is to rein tension and bit pressure and how habituated it is to noseband tension. So it all starts with rein tension technology. So that was a wonderful place for Amanda to start her journey. Um, and she looked at, at also at um, the reinforcing value of um, reinforcement is a term we use to, when we're talking about behaviour that has been strengthened by a reward. And the, she looked at the, the merits of food rewards versus um, pressure release, which is an ongoing journey. Um, and it's really fascinating to, to work out um, when food rewards can help and when they're perhaps less rewarding for the horse that you happen to be working with. What have you found so far? Well, we've got um, we've got a, a, a fairly interesting paper out there that that well, I think is I think it's interesting, um, but I'll let your your listeners be a judge of that. Um, it, it looks at at when the the food rewards are especially rewarding. I think when you're decelerating a horse, when you're slowing a horse down, um, it makes more sense to use food rewards for that sort of behaviour than when you're speeding up, because horses when they naturally graze they slow down and stop when they've found a sweet spot so it makes sense for them to stop moving their legs and receive the reward and mm -hmm. um, what we do is we give a you, you use clicker training so the horse is not just slowing down and demanding food it will only get a food reward delivered if it has heard that clicker sound mm -hmm. and so you can actually shape some very nice stops um, Acceleration, you can you can certainly click and reward upward transitions, um, but you have to accept that once the horse is waiting for a reward, once you've given that auditory cue, it will slow down. What you end up with is in a in a hungry horse, a horse that's highly motivated, you end up with a very good stop. So my belief is that that you, if you if you want to be confident that your horse will tend to default to slowing rather than running which makes it generally safer mm -hmm. then you would look at this technique and there's actually a, a, an, a, an Australian producer of a, a rather extraordinary device called a trigger treater Sue Lloyd is an Australian um, inventor if you will she's a horse person from Queensland and she's invented this um, apparatus that sits on the front of the saddle and it delivers liquid food into the horse's mouth so there's a reservoir of fluid and a little tube that tracks up through the mane and down the cheek piece and pops into the mouth just in front of the bit so while you're riding you can press this button and tell the horse that whatever it has just done was correct um, but you have to accept that you're probably going to, to be slowing the horse down so it's more appropriate to use it for for um, slowing behaviours than, than than speeding up behaviours, but mm. nevertheless you can reward up, upward transitions if they're correct. If you've got the right canter lead, for instance, and you can reward a horse for that. You can reward a horse for approaching scary objects. Um, you can reward a horse for getting closer the next time. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So you're re- reserving the reward so the horse begins to, to, to associate proximity to the scary thing with a food reward. And of mm-hmm. course, horses are very rarely scared of food, so you're building up um, a very strong association with what, what you want, which is a calm um, and safe um, animal to work with. Mm. That's fantastic. We'll link to that for sure. And the trigger trainer, that sounds amazing. Isn't it fantastic what people with an inventive mind can do? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Of course, you have to work out what fluid your horse is particularly rewarded by. So it might be um, molasses water, it might be carrot juice, it might be apple juice. Mm. Um, probably not cider because we yeah. don't want too many jolly ponies. <laughs> <laughs> no beer okay got it and um so what happened next this is amazing there's so you've had such an extraordinary um, career so let's keep going this it, is amazing it's um yeah i'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate to work with some wonderful people um so the, the you know there are some milestones in my academic career that have been marked by the students who've worked with me um i had a, a vet who worked with me um, and she for, for just a year that she was not doing a PhD, she was doing an honours um, programme, but she, she, Kath Evans, um, worked with me and we revealed that the shape of a horse's head actually predicted the distribution of cells in its retina. Horses with different skull shapes are not seeing the world through the same eyes. And we we this this followed on for some from some work that we'd done in dogs. And of course, dogs have very different skull shapes from one breed to another. And um, we showed with dogs that that the shorter the nose, the more central the vision was, rather than peripheral. So pugs have got lots of really good dense cells in their retina that give them good central vision, whereas greyhounds and salukis and borzois and whippets. And Afghans, all those breeds with long skulls are called sight hands. They have very good peripheral vision, not just good central vision in the middle of their central field as the pugs have. Wow. We found a similar effect with horses. So the longer the skull, and the longer the nose especially, and we're here we're thinking about Clydes and standard breads, the more peripheral vision they have. In contrast, the shorter the skull, like, Arabians, for instance, those with the, the concave profile, mm-hmm. the more they, they have good central vision. So it's nowhere near as, as striking as, as the dog because the skulls are not that different. But we found, found exactly the same trend. And it was a significant difference from the Clydes through to the, the Arabians. So that reminds us that, that horses do not have that they're not all living in the same world. They're actually perceiving the world differently. And um, that's a a salutary lesson. We shouldn't assume that every horse is the same, of course. Mm. But even, you know, accepting that we have bred horses for different jobs could could have something to do with this. You know, if we want um, the, the, if we tend to see heavy draft horses having convex head shapes and, more reactive sport horses having dished head shapes, um, concave 
profiles, then we should accept that there is probably a difference going on in the way they're perceiving the world and possibly also the way their brains are processing that information. So that could potentially explain why the early horse breeders were, were saying this is a good draft horse. Yes, it's it's quiet in in the track in in the shafts and it's it's safe when it's pulling something. It's not too reactive. And lo and behold, it's got a, a chunky, lovely, big, boxy head. Mm. Whereas this is a racing animal and it's got a fine head. We, we need to understand this much better, but we're just taking the first steps to exploring how the outside of the animal affects the, the nervous system. Um, and it's a journey that's still going on. We've been looking at the difference between the brains of, of different breeds. That's yet to be published, but we've certainly found some very interesting differences in the brains of donkeys versus horses. Um, so there's a lot that hasn't even been touched upon that we can contribute to as scientists. Great. Tell us a little bit about the donkey versus horse brains. Well, the, the, the really interesting thing about that is that you can actually work out where the, the olfactory lobe of a donkey's brain is by the position and location of its whorls, the whorls on its head on his forehead and this is this is extraordinary and it's, it's probably near to useless but it's it it's part of understanding the the relationship between what we call the integument which is the skin and hair and the nervous system because these structures actually start life as the, the same germinal cells in the embryo the skin and the nervous system both come from the same original cells so it shouldn't surprise us too much that there can be a link. It was actually T Temple Grandin, the, the extraordinary professor from Texas, who mm. has revealed so much about cattle and horse behavior. She worked out that the height of the world on uh, the forehead of cattle predicts how reactive those cattle are when they're being handled. So lower worlds in cattle are associated with calmer animals. Wow. So, you know, it takes somebody with a, a, a set of gifts such as Temple Grandin has mm. to reveal this extraordinary relationship. And there were several groups around the world who, who possibly didn't believe what she was telling us. And they tested this hypothesis and, and confirmed that she was indeed right. So we, we have to, again, be very humble because there's so much that we don't know um, about these sorts of these sorts of relationships between the outside of the horse and the inside of the horse. And so we're on, we're really only taking the first tentative steps into equitation science with information like this. Um, but it's a wonderful journey and everybody's welcome to join. Fantastic. And what other differences did you find with the horse and donkey brain? Um, well, the, 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 the whole, um, cavity that that, that that the brains occupy is different of course because donkeys have a relatively large head mm. um we're still in the process of, of getting this work published so i need to be fairly careful about what i what i share course, with yeah, with your yeah, audience because we, we need to wait till that paper is is published um but we, hopefully one day we will we will have the opportunity to look at the brains of different breeds of horse and in in the dog at least that that reveals an extraordinary story if we compare the pugs with the greyhounds they have a they have a, an entirely different shape of brain 
and mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to explore that with the different horse breeds as we've done with the eyes that we could follow the same story that we followed with the dogs and who knows what we'd find mm-hmm. um but I can certainly link you to, to the, do, the dog brain papers that show this extraordinary relationship um, that we have, that as we've domesticated and selectively bred dogs to have shorter skulls, and um, we, we've actually changed the shape of their brain. So the assumption is that that would function differently. And certainly when we look at the behavior of different breeds of dog and relate their behavior to their skull shape we see some very interesting patterns so the short skull dogs tend to be doing less chasing they tend to be doing showing more aggression towards other members of their own species um, and we would love to to explore this further um, using what we're calling eBark, which is the Equine Behaviour Assessment Research Questionnaire. It follows on the heels of the CBark, which is a Canine Behaviour Assessment Research Questionnaire, which over the last 12 years has gathered data on 90,000 dogs. And that allows us to reveal what is normal for each breed of dog and how each breed changes its normal behavior over time and how it changes its behavior when it's desexed or when it reaches sexual maturity and so these are the questions that we will eventually be able to ask um, of, uh, of horses and use the, the equine behavior assessment research questionnaire ebar to answer some fundamental questions and address some fairly um, well established myths to test whether they actually um, stack up or not Mm, and you've done so much myth debunking already. It's going to be extraordinary once you get that kind of uh, data at your fingertips. Um, before we go deeper into that, was it you who did the studies around the ability to see pain on a horse's face? No, I wish I had been. There are three different groups that have done that, and um, we're just waiting to see which which of the particular pain scales and grimace scales will be accepted as the industry standard but it's going to revolutionize the way we consider horse welfare and um, the way we understand what horses faces are actually telling us it's going to be an extremely useful journey for all of us Um, of course when you're around horses you know when they're not quite right but this is a way of putting um, some numbers on that and understanding how that horse that particular horse that you might see regularly is changing over time i think that ultimately there will be a, a, a function on a smartphone that allows you to work out whether your horse is, is normal that day or not so there will be machine learning um so that that cameras within a a regular smartphone can help us to pick up these tiny changes so the most important thing we need to get out of this is that there's amazing things happening in science now and they really are debunking myths and we as conscious horse people have got somewhere to reference these things so we'll put these things in the show notes but what we also need to do now as horse people and conscious horse people is step up and give data to this incredible initiative that's coming up you're absolutely right you've nailed it that's exactly what we need we need 
people to contribute to this database. And the wonderful thing is they'll get some feedback. They'll work out from, from the data they're giving us, they'll be given feedback on, on how their horse compares with other of the same breed using our, our unique share and compare technology. Yeah, and I, what I'm going to do is, when is that launching? That's launching soon. 28th of April. Okay, so 28th of April. I'm actually going to do a separate podcast on that day. So you don't need to pop it in your diaries and remember. All you need to do is to subscribe to the podcast. And I'm going to do a chat with Kate Fenner. Is that your student who's in, who's the head of this initiative? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to do a separate talk with her about um, exactly what it is and what you can do and where you can go on the 28th of April that will launch. So you'll have it on your phone and you can listen to exactly where it is you need to go and what it is you need to do. But for now, Paul, I just want to thank you so much for your time today, but mostly thank you for the lifetime you've put into so far, um, the work you've done with horses and debunking these myths. Everything um, that you've come up with in science excites me because now we've got a bit of a foundation and a backup to all the things that we believe anyway. Well, that's that's very kind of you. I've really enjoyed this opportunity to, to share my little story with you. I hope it's not over yet. And I, I greatly appreciate the feedback you're giving me because it's it's really important that we make sure that our science is relevant to as many people and as many horses as possible. So thank you again. It's a pleasure and it's heading in the right direction. And so each time you come up with something new and amazing, um, please get in contact because I'd love to share it with my community. Thanks, Tracy. To connect with Paul, simply go to the show notes and follow the links in there. There's links to find Paul and there's links to find the papers that we spoke about in the show as well. I'm on a mission to create a community of gentle and ethical horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook, share or comment on social media posts or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who'd love to listen but isn't quite sure how. I'd also love it, really love it, if you get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you'd like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine. So please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover, if there's something you'd like me to research more and really speak about at length or even just in a short way, let me know. I'd love, love, love to serve you guys more. Anyway, thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.